Here's that one. Yay. Most of them already ran away. They are playing. And at the new venue, they'd be at the Jungle Gym. Um, you guys know Matthew. I just want to take a minute to honor the man and the gift. Um, one of the elders at our church, who is, who is a gifted teacher, a beloved brother, a servant of God, and a man anointed for the ministry that he's walking in. And we just want to receive you. As a son of God, as a leader in the church that has got authority to teach, and a man gifted as a um, teacher in our midst. So, can we just put our hands together and receive Matthew this morning? Oh, thank you, everyone. It's good to be here. Um, lots of excitement and stuff has happened today. Lots of Exciting things, family gatherings can also be hectic, but they're important. Um, so I'm just going to, before I, I launch into the series, I'm just going to pray for us. And I uh, want us to just take a moment to ask the Lord to trust Him as well, to quiet our hearts and our minds before Him. Father, would you quiet our hearts, would you quiet our minds May our hearts be still, may our minds be still before you. May you reach into our hearts by your spirit to speak deep things, Lord, mysterious things. As you transform us, we thank you for your nearness to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, <clears throat> let's see. So. In May, I've been preaching on faith. Those of you who weren't here are most welcome to and encouraged to catch up. Our sermons are on the internet. Um, you can find them. Most of you know how to Google stuff. But um, if you haven't heard them, do catch up. But I will give it a quick five-minute summary of what we've been speaking about up to now. So we've been looking at faith and we've been grounded in the book of Romans. So in part one, we looked at the nature of faith. There we were mostly camped around Romans 3 and 4, Romans chapter 3 and 4. And we've, been, we've read a lot of scripture together, which has been great. Um, we're going to read some more today, so I hope that blesses you. And that we become a community around the word of God, not the words of man. Um, so we looked at the nature of faith. I, I, I gave you some insight into some of the Greek words that are 
used to describe faith and belief in Scripture. And we won't go into them now, but we saw that the meanings of faith is not mere acceptance of sort of a fact that you believe to be true, um, but it means to be persuaded. It means to yield to, to assent to, to obey in a sense, to trust and to rely upon and to believe in, on, or upon a person or thing. And we saw specifically when Scripture is using it, it talks about reliance upon Christ for salvation. It's to believe on the Lord Jesus. It's, there's an object of our faith. It's not faith in the universe or something funny like that. It's faith in the person of Christ. And the word that I really like there is to entrust. To have faith in God means to entrust yourself to him. We had a brief look at Romans. So on, this, on the slides here, we'll just have the scriptures that I'm going to read. So you're welcome to read along with there or close your eyes and listen to the word or however works for you. But the slides are just scriptures today. Um, so the first scripture we looked at was Genesis 15 verses 1 to 6. And this is God speaking with Abraham. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household, a servant, will be my heir. And the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, Abram, and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to Abram, So shall your offspring be. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. So this little story that we have in Genesis is the cornerstone of the new covenant. Okay, we can't miss that. The whole theology of justification by faith that Paul so lays out in Romans is based upon this encounter. Abraham and his response to God is the archetype of salvation. That is how salvation happens. And it's very simple. God makes a promise to Abraham. Abraham believes God. And God says, you, Abraham, are righteous. You who take me at my word are righteous. The whole New Testament doctrine of salvation by faith is talking about this kind of faith. So what we see very simply in this is that it takes God at his word. It places confidence in the power and the faithfulness of God. We read in Romans how Paul is saying that Abraham did not grow weak in faith when he considered his own very old body. But he was confident that God was able to do what he had promised. Abraham was able to face the facts. He didn't have to pretend. He could soberly look at his body and say, this is way too old to make a child. But he could put that next to the word of God, which says, I'm going to give you a child. And he deferred to that. He said, well, if God says it, I can take God at his word. And that was the kernel of faith. That is the kind of faith that pleases God. It's actually very simple. Similarly for us, God reckons us righteous i.e. he justifies us, when we take him at his word about Jesus and about salvation. When he says, you have sin, here's my son, he's died for your sin, believe in him, entrust yourself to him, God says, righteousness is yours. 
when we believe that. When we entrust ourselves to Jesus, not merely believing that He exists, but as far as eternal salvation goes, we entrust ourselves to Him and Him alone. Then we, that was part one, the nature of faith. Part two was all about union with Christ. And there we camped around in Romans 5 and 6. Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the wrath that was directed towards us because of sin, we had a debt, we had an account with God because of sin, which Jesus paid. There was God's wrath directed towards sin, which is now removed because of Jesus. So there's peace. But more than that, the word peace, which is irene in Greek, means to join. It means to be one or to set at one again. So more than being on good terms with God, justification by faith, the Holy Spirit does a work whereby He actually unites us to Christ. That is very, very, very important for us to understand because maybe if we can accept it intellectually, practically we live sort of separate from that. We might come to God when we need forgiveness or we need Him to do something in our lives and then sort of live on our own as if we are the captains of our ship. But you are unified to Christ. Ephesians 2, verse 4 to 6 says it like this. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him. And oh, he raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Salvation is more than forgiveness. It's certainly not less than forgiveness, but it is more. It's also union to Christ. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, it's a transferal from one position into another. It's a transferal from being in Adam, as Romans 5 lays out, to being in Christ. It's also transformation from being under sin's power when you were in Adam to being dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. This, mean, this puts certain spiritual realities into effect. Certain things are now true in the Spirit. By virtue of your union to Christ, there are certain things that are true about you now, and there are things that used to be true about you that are not true about you anymore. Okay, it's important. You can't be a little bit in Christ and a little bit in Adam. There's a transferal. The old man, Scripture talks about, is dead. It's gone. Now you are a new creation. Okay, it's very important for us. So what is this to do with faith, you might ask? Why? What's so important about new creation or being in Adam versus in Christ and faith? Um, as, I, as I touched on it earlier, we tend to think of faith maybe about at salvation. That's when we use faith, right? That's how we get justified. That's when faith is busy happening. And then after that, for a Christian, maybe it's a little bit more event-based. Faith to move this or that mountain. Faith for God to take you through this or that circumstance. Faith for this or that thing to happen, okay? It's kind of got a milestone effect, which is great, right? Scripture is full of that. That is good. That is good. But when it comes to our daily life, when it comes to things like becoming more like God, we treat that as our own project. 
and we often try and do it on our own. We struggle to accept and believe the sort of things that Paul is saying in Romans 6 about being dead to sin. As a result, we live in weakness. We still depend on our own strength to try and overcome sin. But we try and use our intellect, but this is not an intellect thing. It is a faith thing. When Scripture says, you are unified to Christ, you are dead to sin, you are alive to God, it's something we must take by faith. Your mind will not take you there. Okay, It's a work that the Spirit does. You must trust God and the Holy Spirit to give you a revelation of that, is that He can do a deep, down, inward work. And this takes practice. It, you must exercise it daily, hourly. So that's why we're talking about faith on an hourly basis. Daily, every day you must wake up and say, I trust you, Lord. And then later that morning when you've done your work and got lost in whatever you're doing, you must say again, okay, Lord, sorry, I trust you trust you. You have to feed on him in that sense. What we also looked at last week, and we'll read through the scriptures again now, but, but Paul introduces the concept of the law. Now the law, he's talking about Mosaic law, um, but you can also sort of think of any other law, right? The Mosaic law is from the hand of God to the tablet. Paul is saying even that was weak against sin. That could not deal with the sin nature. Okay, so by extension, any other law that we, man makes, you know, we all know about laws in countries, laws in schools, and how powerless they are to really change your heart. Maybe with enough punishment, they can change your behavior, but they cannot change your heart. Okay, so when we read law, it's the Mosaic law, but you can might as well take it that any lesser law is also as weak in overcoming the sinful nature. So law is introduced to control or to manage sin. Right? That's how it comes in. But all that it actually does is that it magnifies sin. You realize you're actually way more sinful than you thought you were before you came to the law. And it actually provokes sin. Nothing incites a desire in you to do that bad thing than the law which says don't do that thing. Our carnal nature, that is the flesh, before we are regenerated, plus law doesn't equal harmonious obedience to the Lord. It equals fire and sin and more fire and sin and a big mess. Okay, Human nature, with law superimposed on it, Scripture says brings death. Okay? It doesn't actually bring anything good. That's the part that we struggle to understand, right? Intuitively, we think it must be a law. And that's why the Jews opposed Paul's gospel. They said... Your gospel is mistaken because how can you take out the law? You just leave people to sin and carry on sinning? Paul says, no. According to the gospel, you actually die to sin. The body of sin is dead. As a believer, sin no longer has dominion over you. And then he goes on to illustrate that the law never did anything about sin in the first place anyway. All it did was highlight it, make you live under condemnation. And provoke more sin. Paul says justification by faith means union to Christ. And it means union to his death. So when Christ died, we died. Amen. When Christ was raised, we were raised. Okay? But I must say this. Because some of you are not believing me right now. And you're also not ready to accept what I'm saying. 
It's not what I'm saying. It's what Scripture is saying. But there's a, there's a reason we struggle with this. It's because we are in what people call the already, not yet type of tension. Okay? A lot of things have been set in place in God's kingdom. When Jesus comes back, there's a consummation of all of that. So we have to admit that we live in a tension now. We still have bodies. Okay? God doesn't now reverse the fact that our bodies decay and that and sin comes to us through our bodies, right? Our eyes, our minds, our everything. The fact that we are in a body means that sin can come and poke us. The important thing is, beforehand, sin used to be able to poke you and grab you by the neck and say, you are mine. No longer. For the Christian, though, sin can still come and poke you. You actually have victory over it. So I'm not denying the fact that we will experience temptation. This is not a Superman gospel, okay? You will still experience it, but you have to know that you are dead to it. You have to know that sin is not your boss. Union to Christ means union to his death. Union to his death means you also died. Union to his life means that you also live in newness of life. And Paul uses the word baptism. And last week I went into a bit more detail about that. Um, Paul is not talking about water baptism at that point, but water baptism is very important. Water baptism is a sacrament, just like taking communion, as we will do later. It's a, it's a time and space act that anchors you to an eternal reality. Okay, so if you haven't been baptized, I encourage you to. We'd love to walk that journey with you. But these things are already true when you become justified by faith. Okay, so that was part one and two. And now we are at part three. And this I have called Great and Precious Promises. So we've discovered that justification is not by the law. As it says in Romans, by works of the law will no man be justified in God's sight. Okay, so we can all accept. I cannot be declared righteous before God by keeping a law. Most most of us accept that, right? That's what you have to accept to become a Christian. Justification is not by the law very well. But what about sanctification? Sanctification is that process whereby we become more and more like Christ. We take on more and more of His character in obedience, in holiness and purity, in love towards others. We become more and more like Him in every way. Okay, It's not only about holiness and purity. It's not only about being able to obey Him, it's, it's about becoming like Him. No one could love more than Jesus or be more kind than Jesus or more patient than Him, but all of that needs to happen in us. If justification is not by the law, surely sanctification must be, at least the holiness part, right? Surely holiness must at least come by a law that we subscribe to and endeavor to achieve. Don't we need some law and some rules? As we'll see as we read in Romans 6, which we read last week, and 7, Scripture says, no. Justification is not by the law, and neither is sanctification. The law can't save you, and the law can't actually transform you. How then? How do we, how do we grow in sanctification? Paul says, number one, you are dead to sin. You must realize this. And number two, you yield yourself to God in faith. You accept that fact. He says you're dead to sin. You say, thank you, Lord, I'm alive to you. And you yield 
yourself to him. You come to him. You trust him. You feed off him daily, hourly, and you trust him. And he goes to work in you. Right, so let's read some scripture. Romans 6, verse 1 to 11. This we read last week. I'm just going to read it again for us, for our benefit. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves or reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I've come to realize, I think I might preach about this every time I get to preach. Just because it is so big. I know for a fact some of us are not getting it right now. But I'm trusting in the Lord, okay? I've read these passages many, many, many times without getting what Paul is saying. But God is faithful to lead us into truth. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, as we said earlier. It's a fact. We struggle to believe it, but we must believe it. We must accept it and say, yes, Lord, make it true in my heart. Please, Holy Spirit. From verse 12 to verse 14. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. That last verse is very interesting. Sin will have no dominion over you. Why? Because you're not under law, but under grace. What Paul's about to unpack in the rest of Romans 6 and Romans 7 is how being under the law is the means by which sin has dominion over you. Okay. But the gospel does something else entirely. It, it, it puts you into an entirely new realm. Supernatural work happens inside of you. So it's an entirely different thing. But we see here, present yourselves. Right? That's got the sound of activity to it, doesn't it? To present yourself. For me to present myself to you guys, I actually have to walk up onto the stage, take the mic and start talking. For me to present myself to God, I need to wake up on time, go to Him to a quiet place, take out the word, speak to Him with my mouth. Okay. So it's important to understand that presenting ourselves is very practical. That is how we live into these realities and how 
they become more and more of reality to us. Okay? It's not passive, sort of sitting, sitting idly by, and I guess one day maybe God will deliver me from this sin. But at the same time, on the other side, it's not a frenzy of activity relying on the power of my flesh, the power of my commitment, the power of my willpower, the power of my zeal. Okay, it's neither of those things. In many ways, faith is a work. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, these three abide, faith, hope, and love. Now, lest we think these are nice sentiments to put in our fridge or at our weddings, Paul is very practical about this. And here he repeats the same thing, and I love this. In 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2 to 3, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly remembering you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father, listen to this, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, hope, and love are very high and lofty themes. We could never plumb the depths of them, but they're also very practical. Paul is saying this is how these come into your life. So in many ways, faith is a work. But it's very important to say, so it, it is a work. It's not passively sitting in wishful thinking that maybe one day God will do something, but it's also not running off in your own strength, relying on that Relying on the dead flesh to bring about eternal fruit, waste of time. Okay? Faith is a work, it's a posture of the heart that comes before God daily with childlike simplicity, expectant of his faithfulness and power. And that's the key. I think sometimes when we feel really defeated, we, we don't, and, and when we're mostly focusing on how well we've done or our ability, we start to get deflated and then we start to not expect much from God. Well, I guess I'll just struggle with this old thing for my whole life. But faith comes expectantly. Okay? And as I said already, faith means you get up. It means instead of going to do straight to work or go to do this or that thing or watch the news or go for a run, you get up and you say, push all those things out. Hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm coming before God. Okay, so it's very practical. Faith is practical. It has practical outflows. But when you come before God... You don't come, you know, saying, I don't know, Lord, if you really want to do this for me. As we're going to see now, God's really committed to your sanctification. He is really committed to working his power in you to transform you. Okay, so you come with an expectation. It's almost like a, it's like a front-footed posture, eager, expectant. You're anticipating what God will do in you. And when you do that, he may very well give you a practical instruction for the day. That leads to you to victory over this or that thing. Okay? God is very practical. He may give you an instruction or insight that day. But works without faith are just as dead as faith without works. Okay? And I, I don't want to speak for everyone. But I think maybe we tend to. We can easily go into work mode. We're all very ambitious. We all very want to do the right thing. And we want to, not many of us are the kind that sits passively wish, wishing maybe for God to do something. We think, yes, we've got to do more. We've got to do more. But unless that is preceded by faith, expectant of God's power in on you when you're doing that, it's, 
it's basically as dead as faith without works. We must start from a place of confidence in and reliance upon God's power and commitment. Everybody still with me? I think this light is making me thirsty. It's like I'm in the desert, yeah? Okay, we're going to read now again and allow Scripture to speak to you. Romans 6, verse 15 to 23. I'm not going to preach too much on it, but Paul is basically enlarging what he's already said. The book of Romans follows that pattern. Paul says something, boom, then he explains it. Then he explains it some more. And then he says another thing, and then he explains that thing. and goes to explain that thing again. Okay, so this is not new ideas. It's just enlarging what he's already said. From verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Okay? Present yourselves. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul the whole time is contrasting two things, two ways. And you can't be in both, okay? But he's trying to get us to understand things. He's saying on the one hand there's a spiritual reality that's been set in place. How do you experience it? And he uses a couple of analogies. In this place, he uses slavery, which I also won't go into preach on now. The Bible can mean a lot of things when it says slavery. But anyway, what it does mean in this context is dominion over you. Who's the boss? Okay, How, Who's calling the shots? So in short, he says, if you, present your, if you present yourself to sin, sin is certainly not passive. Okay? If, if, let's put sin on the side. If you present yourself to sin, it's not going to look at you. How do you do? It's going to grab you and say, okay, come, let's go. Okay, sin does that. Sin is not passive. If you present yourself to sin, it will come in to try and to have its way to call the shots and to rule you. But amazingly, when you present yourself to God, His grace is also, the Puritans used to talk about grace militant. God's grace is also not passive. When you present yourself to Him, God is there to move in with His grace and for His grace to go to work in you, for your healing, for your restoration, for your sanctification. The Holy Spirit does that work. He's called the Holy Spirit because His job is to impart more and more of God's holiness and of His character into you. Okay, so on both sides of the moment, like when you present yourself, stuff's going to happen. And what I really want to us to get out of the series is that when we present ourselves to God, we must rejoice and have hope knowing that stuff will happen. God will go to work in us. 
Okay? He will not leave you struggling in that sin for 20 years. He will not leave you as an angry, impatient man for 20 years. When you present yourself to him, he will go to work in you. You have already died to that wrathful, angry, sinful person. And God's going to transform you and put more and more of Christ in you. Okay. So he uses slavery as an example. Now we go to Romans 7. Paul uses another example. He uses the example of marriage. And you're going to see that Paul's been talking about sin, and now he starts to talk about the law, which might take us by, by surprise. But he starts to talk about the law at the beginning of Romans 7 as a prelude to the rest of Romans, which we know quite well in Romans 7, verse 7 to 25. Okay, but starting at Romans 7, he says, or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way, of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So now the illustration is marriage. You were in one relationship, and we'll talk about it now. Covenants. The Bible talks about the new covenant, the old covenant, and the new covenant. The Bible is literally split into two based on those two things. Okay, so we must endeavor to understand it. Maybe we don't use words like covenant a heck of a lot today, but we must endeavor to understand old covenant and new covenant. This is what Paul is introducing. He says, you were married under the law. That was a partnership that brought about death. Legally, you are no more in that partnership. Christ died and you died with him. So now you're actually free. Now you are in this partnership. Now you belong to Christ and you are married to him. Okay. He says, we serve in the new way of the spirit. You can only walk in one of two ways. The way of the spirit and the new way of the spirit and the old way of the written code are conflicting. Reading from verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Now to covet is to, to desire what someone else has. Most of us are happy with what we have until we see what someone else has. That happens all the time. Market, that's the purpose of marketing. Social media, is, that's, that's what's around every corner. Okay, That thing to make you dissatisfied with what you have now so that you can want someone else's thing. Solomon in Ecclesiastes goes so far as to say that all ambition comes from man's envy of his neighbor. Whether it's ambition for more money or a promotion or whatever, recognition, it's mostly because we saw that on someone else's life. Okay, Paul goes to that one because you can keep a lot of the other covenants externally you know you might not kill people or cheat on your wife or whatever you can keep those but covet we do that about 10,000 times a day the point of what Paul is saying here is that 
to say do not covet doesn't actually heal that, okay? But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Okay, a lot of back and forth. So I find it, and he's getting desperate now, to be a law that when I want to do right, evil is right there. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he exclaims, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with myself I serve the law of sin. Lots that one can say about yeah. There's lots of debate about whether he's talking about unbelievers or Christians who are struggling with this. The long and the short is actually all of us can really identify with this, you know, whether it was before we were saved or in the early stages. The thing is, if you're going to try and relate to God by the law, you will experience this. The law is going to always condemn you and say you're not good enough, okay? Paul is saying, just chuck that. That's not how we relate to God. We serve in the new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the written code. And it's important as much as we identify with that, that we don't stay there. Paul is not saying, oh, this is just how life is for the Christian, you know, you feel this and everything. And sometimes we console ourselves with this, and it can be consoling to realize that Paul himself went through this. But the whole point of Romans is that we don't stay there. We must have the victorious spirit in our heart. Okay, and remember, nothing good dwells in our natural man, nothing at all. Apart from God's power at work in us, we are not capable of any moral good. It's important to accept and to realize that despite what the world says. Paul says that if you want to relate to God by the law, you're desiring to be good by attempting to conform to external moral laws is a wretched, despairing, agonizing, condemning, killing, dead end. He says the letter kills we must not stay here in this identification. We must move on to victory. He says, who can help us? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Which is a response to, but now we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Endeavoring to be good or please God by your best efforts to keep the law or any other law will not work. Higher power is needed for genuine transformation. Now I think in the interests of time, I'm not going to carry on through Romans 8 verse 1 to 9, but do read that when you get home. But is this too good to be true? It doesn't make sense to our natural minds. I mean, is Paul on, on something there? Was to Paul maybe have an angle that the others maybe wouldn't agree with? Is it only him? No. We go to 2 Peter 1 verse 3 to 4. <clears throat> 
His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption of the world that is there because of sinful desire. Jesus' own words when He was on earth were about fountains of eternal life springing up out of your heart. He says, when you eat the bread I give you, you'll never hunger. When you drink the water I give you, you will never thirst. More than that, the prophets, let's go quickly go to Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The prophets pointed to this. God all the time through the prophets was saying, I'm going to do this thing. You're under the law now and I see you are adulterous people. You can't respond to it. I'm going to do this thing. And he says in Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. This is the covenant. Next slide. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. It will be in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And all of them will know me from the least of them to the greatest. Let's quickly go to see how he promises it in Ezekiel. In the next slide. Therefore says the house of Israel, say to the, this is what the Lord says, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Okay, there's something I won't get into now, but... God's love was certainly a motivation, but God's glory is also a motivation for his salvation. Hopefully, I'll have the skill to preach on that one day, but that is something amazing. We can go to the next slide. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Can we doubt God's commitment to helping us to become more like Christ? Certainly not. The new covenant said God is going to live in you. The new covenant is what we are under. We are not under the old covenant. Don't even try to live under the old covenant. Okay. In the last five minutes, I called this sermon, Great and Precious Promises. I want to make it a bit practical for us. What are these great and precious promises? So we we can be persuaded of God's commitment, but let's see what else he said. Let's go to, to Galatians. Paul is answering similar things in Galatians, and he says, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. How do we obtain righteousness? For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. To make it practical, I mean, you could turn that into a prayer, a very short prayer in the morning. Thank you, Lord. I believe that I have died to sin. Thank you that I've identified with your death, I've identified with your life, and through the Spirit, I eagerly wait for you to work more and more righteous character in me. And then you start the day. Then you go out. There's a big promise of what God will do in us. And we go to Ephesians, there's some more. And why not do this at tea time? After your meetings, you realize you've been impatient with everyone around you, or you've been grumpy, or you've looked at that person in the wrong way, whatever it is. 
Remind yourself again of God's commitment to transforming you. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. You can say, thank you, Father, that you've made me a new creation, and I can now put on, forgive me for whatever I failed with in these past two hours. Thank you that my new nature has been created after your likeness, in true righteousness and holiness. Not external, inward, that becomes external. Okay. Even more promises. Philippians chapter 2. Why don't you do this at lunchtime again to remind yourself. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All of this I'm trying to get you to not be despondent when you fail at your own righteousness project. It's not your project. You present yourself to God. Present yourself morning tea time, lunchtime, present yourself with faith and confidence that He is at work in you and He is transforming you by His grace. Abide in Him and you will bear much fruit. The final promise, one of the most encouraging ones of them all. You should almost say this in the evening and in the morning again so you can start on a happy note. 1 Thessalonians. Now, may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Thank you, Father, that you are committed to making me more like Jesus. You are faithful. You will surely do it. I praise you, Lord. exceedingly great and precious promises. Scripture says that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that lives in us. You know how difficult it is to raise something from the dead? Imagine for a moment, um, let's try to think of something not too graphic that won't make everyone freak out, but an animal that's been killed, right? Whether you've hunted it or it's your meat for your burger, the animal gets killed, its throat gets cut, okay, it gets bled out. It dies from mortal wounds. It's not like it lost its breath for a moment and then oh, all of a sudden its, its throat was cut. Jesus died from mortal wounds. Okay? There are lots of all funny f- false theories about him just fainting on the cross. Jesus bled to death and his body was literally incapable of life. God restored that. It, it's excessive power. It's, it's more power than we can even comprehend went to work to resurrect Jesus' physical body. Right? He came alive into a physical body. He's in heaven now in a glorified physical body. He's not just floating. We also don't float. That's another sermon for another day. But massive power went to work to resurrect Jesus and to exalt him as the king of all the universe. Scripture says that power is at work in us. Okay? May we grow in experience of that, in revelation of that, and may we delight more and more in God as we experience Him doing that in us, being strong on our behalf. Amen? Amen. Amen. We're going to take some communion. Um, So the ushers can get that ready.
But while they're getting that ready, I want to actually just leave some quiet space for you, like I have in the previous rounds, just to reflect on what's said, pray to God, and the ushers will start handing out the elements. Nordea will just do some light instrumental in the background. But just speak to God and have your heart before Him while the ushers hand this out to you.